Hi, everyone. Nice to see your faces again. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we will get into the passage. Our Father, we, we love your word. Um, your word tells us who you are. And we would do now, as, uh, as Ruth once did, we would come to you, the Lord our God, to take refuge under your wings. So draw us to yourself now by your word, for your glory, through Christ our Redeemer. Amen. Well, um, it's been only a week, uh, since last Sunday that is, since we were last together in the book of Ruth. But probably about six weeks have passed in the timeline of the story. Chapter 2, you'll remember, began at the very beginning of harvest season, and most of the chapter happens on one day, all except for the last verse, um, verse 23, which says that Ruth worked um, alongside the other women in Boaz's field until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. So that's probably about six weeks from late April to early June. So we arrive at chapter 3, and it's summertime in Bethlehem. The harvest has been good. Boaz and his men are into the threshing and winnowing phase of their work, preparing grain, some for storage, some for milling, some for roasting. That's where we enter chapter three. But we need to notice what the writer does, how he or she structures the telling of the story. In particular, pay attention to the passing of time in the story. Now, the first five verses of the book cover a period of about 10 years, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Then the rest of chapter 1, which tells us about when Naomi left Moab and journeyed with Ruth back to Bethlehem, that probably covers about four or five days, maybe a week. Then the whole of chapter 2 takes place in just one day, well, apart from the last verse, which, as I've just mentioned, fills in the harvest season of about six weeks. Now, chapter three also takes place on just one day, or uh, more accurately, it takes place over just one night, probably from early evening, shortly before sunset, through to early the next morning, shortly after sunrise. So why does the writer slow down time over this one night? What happened on this one night, more than 3,000 years ago, that was so important that God, by his Holy Spirit, inspired an eternal record of it? And in fact, the way the writer tells the story draws us in to one moment that night. One moment on which depended the life of a destitute woman. One moment on which depended the destiny of the ancient nation of Israel, and one moment on which pivoted the outworking of God's dealings in grace with all people for all time. One moment on this one night in Bethlehem, 3,000 years ago. We'll come to that moment in a little while, but first, Let's remember what the Lord has already said to us uh, from the book of Ruth. From chapter 1, we heard the Lord say, Turn to me, even on the darkest of days, when everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, when all you feel is empty, 
bitter and alone. Remember who I am. I am the Lord God who comes to the help of his people to give food, to give hope, to give life. Turn to me and trust me, and you will see that this dark day is not where your story ends. From chapter 2, we heard the Lord say, I am at work in your ordinary moments. As you walk before me in wisdom and in godliness, I am at work catching up your ordinary moments into my glorious purposes. And now today from chapter 3, we'll hear that the Lord God has sent a Redeemer to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and to give to us what we cannot gain for ourselves. I'll say that again. From chapter 3, we'll hear that the Lord God has sent a Redeemer to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and to give to us what we cannot gain for ourselves. Now, as was the case in chapter 2, we'll see again that the Lord works uh, in his sovereign providence over all things and in his sovereign providence through our choices and actions. We'll see both what the Lord does for us and what kind of people he calls us to be. So let's get back to the story. Now, in a way, the story of chapter 3 really begins at verse 20 of chapter 2. You'll remember that um, up to verse 19 of chapter 2, Ruth had spent the day working in Boaz's fields, and she'd returned home to her mother-in-law, Naomi, in the evening uh, with the results of her work, a good measure of barley. And as they ate together, Ruth told Naomi all about her day. So that takes us up to verse 19 of chapter 2. And then in verse 20, Naomi says, The Lord bless Boaz for his kindness. Did you know, Ruth, that he's actually related to my late husband, Elimelech? And that means that he is one of our family redeemers. Now, from that evening onwards, through the six weeks of harvest, Naomi mulled this over in her mind. No doubt she prayed. And eventually she was ready. She had a plan. And it was all based on the fact that Boaz was a family redeemer. So before we can understand what's going on in chapter 3, we need to know what a redeemer was. And we learn that from earlier in the Old Testament, in the laws of Moses, in Leviticus chapter 25, and in Deuteronomy, also chapter 25. Very simply, the role of a redeemer was to, um, in the event that an Israelite man died without leaving behind a son, uh, or if a person found themselves in desperate financial circumstances and had to sell their land, then the redeemer, the brother or the next closest, next closest male kinsman of the deceased man was required to take his widow as wife and both redeem the land and provide a son to carry on the deceased father's name. This was God's way of ensuring that nobody uh, no family line of Israel would be permanently trapped in poverty, that no family line would die out, and that the land which God had given to his people would remain in the ownership of his people. Now, these Redeemer laws had been swirling around in Naomi's mind and heart for six weeks, and that's where we enter chapter three. 
So in verse one, Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, I must find rest for you. Or your translation might say, I must find a home for you. And then in verses two, three, and four, she tells Ruth her plan. Now we'll come back to her plan in a moment, but let's just notice something here first. What was Naomi's spiritual and emotional state six weeks before this? Well, you remember at the end of chapter one, Naomi had said that the Lord had emptied her. The Lord had brought calamity or misfortune upon her. She told others not to call her Naomi, which means pleasant, but instead to call her Mara, which means bitter. She was spiritually depressed. Her soul was low. All she could see was pain. And at the beginning of chapter two, when Ruth said, let me go out for the day and look for work. Maybe I'll find favor in somebody's eyes and they'll let me pick up grain in their field. All Naomi was able to do at that low point was to acquiesce. All she could do was to just let it be. She had no spiritual or emotional energy. She wasn't able at that point to initiate anything, to propose anything, to contribute anything. She wasn't able to look towards the future with hope or resolve or any sense of purpose. Now here she is, six weeks later, saying to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek a home, a place of rest for you? And she has a plan. Well, what a change. Naomi is in a completely different spiritual and emotional state than she was six weeks before. She's now actively concerned for the future and not just her own future, but for Ruth. And she's been strategizing. Now we'll come back to her plan in a minute, but don't let the mere fact that she was planning something pass you by. Something has changed in Naomi in these six weeks. Now, how did that happen? What enabled that change? Well, I think the story points us to two things. First, that Naomi had been meditating on God's word. Well, how do we know that? Because her whole plan, which we're about to look at, was based on the Redeemer laws of Leviticus and Deut Deuteronomy. For six weeks, since that evening that Ruth had first returned from the fields and uh, Naomi uh, told Naomi that she'd ended up in the fields of Boaz, something had sparked in her heart and she'd remembered God's Redeemer laws. Since that night, she'd been chewing over God's word and chewing over a plan based on God's word. Her preoccupation for six weeks had been, how does God's word apply to our situation? Meditation on God's word was the first thing that began to draw Naomi's heart back from bitterness and into a sense of hope-filled purpose. And second, the kindness of God's people. Ruth and Naomi both had experienced the favor, the protection, the provision of God's people. Since they'd arrived in Bethlehem, they'd been treated with dignity. Ruth had been enabled to work and to earn and to provide by her own labor for herself and for Naomi. 
who was known to the people of Bethlehem. They'd been treated kindly by God's people. God's word and the kindness of God's people were what rescued Naomi from bitterness and brought her back to a place of intentional, purposeful, hope-filled participation in what God was doing. And I know as a church, we want to be a community characterized by a, a preoccupation with God's word and how that applies to our daily lives. That's what our journey groups all are about. And by kindness. Rescuing kindness. It's amazing how God works through the ordinary kindness of his people. Well, back to verse one. My daughter, should I not seek a home for you? Should I not seek rest for you? Well, what does she mean by that? Well, the writer uses the same word here as he or she uses in chapter 1, verse 9. That was when, that was when um, Naomi had heard that the Lord had come to help his people back in Judah. And she was about to leave Moab and return to Bethlehem. And she said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes. May the Lord be kind to you and grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So what Naomi means in verse one of chapter three now, when she says, should I not find rest or a home for you, is it's time for you to find another husband, Ruth. The life of an unmarried woman in this world is going to be hard. You need to find a place of rest. You need a husband who will give you a home, who will love you and protect you and provide for you. Now, here's the plan. Take a bath, put some perfume on, dress nicely, not in your widow's mourning robes anymore. Show that you are now ready to marry again. Go down to the threshing floor. Stay out of sight, and when Boaz has fallen asleep, sneak in, pull the blanket off his feet, lie down, and wait for him to wake up and tell you what to do. Now, there are two big things we need to slow down and think carefully about at this point. First, <laughs> this is a strange plan, to say the least. And second, we need to feel just how high the stakes were in this plan. There were only two possible outcomes. Marriage, rest, a home, hope and a future. Or shame, destitution, hopelessness. Or first, a strange plan. Can you imagine mothers saying to your university age daughters, I think you should head across to the guy's residence tonight, uh, sneak into someone's room and see if you can uncover his feet, then uh, wait for him to wake up and tell you what to do. Hmm. <laughs> what does that sound like? The kind of woman that went to threshing floors at harvest time at night. Well, we know from elsewhere in the Bible, Hosea chapter nine, for example, we know those were the kind of women who were there to do a certain kind of business. This was very risky. Why did Naomi choose this strategy? 
why not a direct, straightforward conversation? Why this subtlety? Well, the writer doesn't tell us directly, but I'm going to follow the lead of one commentator who I think has this right, and I'm going to pick up some clues in the story. Do you remember in chapter two, uh, when Ruth asked Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes? And he answered in verses 11 and 12 of chapter two, because of the kindness you have shown your mother-in-law and because you have come to the Lord God of Israel to take refuge under his wings. Well, that response, I think, was loaded with meaning. First of all, Boaz commends Ruth for her kindness to her mother-in-law. But what could that mean? In what way was Ruth kind to Naomi? Well, of course, Boaz knew that Ruth had uh, taken her daily gleanings from the field home to share with Naomi. But Boaz also knew full well that harvest season would end soon. He couldn't rely on daily gleanings. How would Ruth, a widowed foreigner, a Moabite no less, with no land, no assets, no money, how would Ruth provide for, how would she care for her aging widowed mother-in-law long-term? And there was only one answer. She had to marry. So when, Booth, uh, when Boaz answered Ruth that she had found uh, a favor in his eyes because of her kindness to Naomi, what he was saying was, you have found favor in my eyes because I understand that when you left Moab, you left behind an extended family that would have taken you in and cared for you. You did so because you understood that Naomi was too old to remarry and that the only way to provide for her was for you to come with her and for you to marry and to bring her under the care of your new husband. Now, he doesn't say any of that explicitly because, well, he's older, she's younger. He wonders if she'll be more attracted to one of the younger men. But I think he's hinting, I think he's testing, I think he's suggesting ever so subtly that he understands that marriage is on Ruth's mind. And in a very gently suggestive way, he introduces marriage into the unspoken dialogue between them. And Ruth reports his words back to Naomi. And over the weeks, as Naomi had been mulling this over, she'd begun to understand, as an older woman herself, the subtle message of the older man. That's the first clue to understanding Naomi's strategy. She recognized Boaz's signal. Second, Boaz had said that the second reason why Ruth found favor in his eyes was that she had come to the Lord God of Israel to take refuge under his wings. But then Boaz had given Ruth refuge under his wings. Look back with me quickly at some verses in chapter 2. Verse 14, for example. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here and share with me. Now, we know that there were other gleaners present, but Boaz singled her out. 
Again, verse 14, he offered her some roasted grain. Verse 15, he ordered his men to treat her kindly. Verse 16, he even instructs his men to deliberately drop some stalks for her to pick up. He diminishes his own harvest for her. The Lord repay you for what you have done, he had said to her in verse 12. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's what he said. But what reward did she need? What repayment for her kindness did he and she know was needed? Marriage. May you find refuge under the wings of the Lord, he had said. But then he, Boaz, became her refuge. He provided safety, food, a place at the table to share with him at mealtimes. So here's what I think is going on in chapter 3. As the weeks have passed and Boaz has continued to subtly show his affections for Ruth, and as Ruth has reported all of this to Naomi every night, and as the two women have pondered Boaz's kind words and kind actions, they've become convinced that they are laden with loving intentions. They've become convinced that what Boaz really means by all his words and his actions is because you take refuge under the wings of God, you are the kind of woman I want to cover with my wings. I want to be the one to care for you. In his way, Boaz has been expressing his intentions, his hopes to Ruth all along. And so Naomi planned a response just as subtle. Ruth will go to him as he sleeps in the grain field where he has so far expressed all his care towards her. And when he wakes, she will speak one sentence to him. And everything hangs on how he responds in that moment. Everything hangs on whether or not Naomi and Ruth have properly interpreted all of Boaz's kindness so far. Ruth will say, uh, turn to chapter 3, verse 9, if you have your Bibles. Ruth will say these words. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a family redeemer. Now, it seems from other passages in the Old Testament that the phrase to spread the corner of one's garment over someone means to marry them. For example, in um, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, where God describes Israel as a young lady of foreign birth who he took to be his wife. He says, I spread the corner of my garment over you. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Spread the corner of your garment over me, for you are a family rede redeemer, she says in verse 9. Well, you may remember last week um, I said that movie soundtracks 
tell us that this moment in the story is a big one. The drama and the tension of the story build, and in the background, gently at first, the music swells in anticipation of the moment. But sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes a sudden silence tells us that this is the big moment. Now, this is the big moment in the book of Ruth. The silence between verse 9 and verse 10. Have the ladies understood Boaz correctly? Or was he just a generous hearted older man? And the stakes were very high. If he was merely a kind older man wanting to offer some temporary relief to a pair of poor women, then how might he have interpreted Ruth's midnight approach at the threshing floor? We know he was a godly man, so it's unlikely he would have given in to the temptation to sexual immorality. More likely he would have been deeply offended. He would have thought that she was trying to repay his generosity with sexual favors. He would have thought that she was trying to turn unearned kindness into a transaction. He would have been deeply offended. And in all likelihood, she would have found herself no longer in his favor. Now think of what that means. Harvest season is over. There's no more gleaning in the fields. The grain Ruth and Naomi had been storing up over the past six weeks would soon run out. And they'd be destitute. And worse off than they were before. Remember from chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz was a man of standing in Bethlehem. If he'd withdrawn his favor, people would have known. Word would have spread. And Naomi and Ruth would have been without hope. In all likelihood, Ruth would have become one of the women who works at night at the threshing floors. Everything hangs on this silent moment between verse 9 and verse 10. Will he denounce her as a seductress? Will he send her away out of favor and into shame and destitution and hopelessness? Or will he do for her what she cannot do for herself? Will he rescue her? Will he redeem her? Will he give to her what she cannot gain for herself? Rest, a home, a hope, a family, a future, a place among God's people. So how will Boaz respond? What will he say? The Lord bless you, my daughter. Don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will give to you what you cannot gain for yourself. And friends, your life, your eternity is bound up in that reply. For from that reply followed a marriage. 
from which followed a son and a grandson and then a great grandson who was King David. And from the line of King David came Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, our great redeemer. And when you come to Jesus, the great redeemer, and all you bring to that moment is your spiritual poverty, your spiritual need, your utter destitution, your complete hopelessness apart from his grace, and you cry out to him, spread your garment over me. Your eternity hangs in that moment before he replies. Don't be afraid. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will give to you what you cannot gain for yourself. Forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, place in the family, home in the new creation to come. The great Redeemer will never turn away those who come to him, trusting in his steadfast love. But for today's troubles too, for the difficulties and the sorrows of life in this fallen world, when you find yourself at the end of your resources, when you find yourself helpless and dependent on the favor of others, Still your great Redeemer says to you, don't be afraid. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now you don't know how your Redeemer will take care of you, but you can be certain that he knows your need. And he will do for you all that his kindness and his wisdom and his abundance and his strength and his love deems best for you. When you bring your need, your little need, great though it feels to you, when you bring your little need to his great supply, your lack to his fullness, your want to his heart desire to give. Your great Redeemer's reply is always, as Boaz's was in chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, my son. Don't be afraid. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will give to you what you cannot gain for yourself. I have spread the corner of my garment over you. Ezekiel 16 verse 8. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you by the blood of my son. You are mine. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our Lord, our rock and our redeemer our rock and our redeemer you are the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves who gives to us what we cannot gain for ourselves how amazing 
that we serve a God who is so kind-hearted, so merciful, so graceful, so bound in love to his people. Father, you have spread your garment over us, made us yours for eternity. But in spreading your garment over us, you have also vowed to care for us every moment from now until we enter eternity. So we bring you all our needs, great though some of them feel to us, overwhelming though some of them feel to us. Our little needs are not even a drop in the ocean to your great supply. The cries of our heart meet an answer from your heart that says, don't be afraid, come to me, I will give you all you need. How wonderful a God you are, how merciful a Savior. Thank you, Father. Amen.